ahead and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5. That'll be our main text today. And um, I want to unpack a little bit first. We're going we're gonna to show, if you've never heard, I've mentioned this several times uh, as, a, as your pastor, an uh, uh, organization called the, the Bible Project. And it's a great thing if you, you don't know about it. I actually use it to enhance my studies. Um, I, I really encourage you, if you have kids, even teenagers, use it. It's a great tool. Uh, they, they do it in story illustration. They do themes. They do books of the Bible. Um, they talk about, you know, how the Bible was written and, and the different sections of the Bible. It's just great overall. And so we're going to watch a video this morning in just a, a few seconds, a few minutes. Uh, but we're also going to uh, watch a couple uh, throughout the next few weeks because I want you to really get this idea of the kingdom of God, or if you will, this upside down kingdom, because uh, this idea of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven or the gospel kingdom, it's used about 162 times in the New Testament. So it's pretty significant, right? Now, only about, I think it's about 20, uh, 126 of those were actually in the gospel. So what that means is that the four gospels are about Jesus' life, then that means a big part of his ministry, a big part of what he did when he was on earth was to teach people about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. And what's ironic about that is you don't hear it preached a lot. I, I, I never heard that pre, preached growing up. I'll be honest, I've been in a Southern Baptist pastor life for 20 years, and I, I don't hear it preached much. But, but the reality, if you look through the New Testament, especially in the gospel, especially the life of Christ, you're going to see him talk about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so what we're going to be spending the next six or seven weeks on the Beatitudes, which is out of the Sermon uh, on the Mount, and he talks about this, this idea of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. In fact, when you look, John the Baptist, the precursor to, to Jesus, he says in Matthew 3, uh, 2, it says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? So John the Baptist was using the same language he understood um, what his role was in the precursor being to Jesus. But Jesus came, and in Matthew 4, 17, it says, he even said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So he used the same language because the kingdom was at hand. Now, we don't use that language a lot, but we actually use it as a part of our vision because we believe it's important. We believe we exist to glorify God by advancing his kingdom. Well, what does that look like? Well, I'm going to be sharing some of that this morning what does that mean to be a part of God's kingdom? What does it mean, the kingdom of God? And so we're going to be kind of unpacking that a little bit. In fact, what you're going to hear from me and what you're going to hear in through, the, through the gospel teaching is that the kingdom of God has come, but is coming. And what's ironic, too, is probably 15, 20 years ago, if you would kind of preach the principles of the kingdom, it almost sounds like a social gospel, but it's not. It's a part of God's kingdom being advanced because the gospel, when it changes people from the inside out by being filled with the Holy Spirit, there's outward change. And some of these things that, if you will, just as he taught, Jesus taught his disciples, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're, he's bringing, he has brought heaven to earth. And we as ambassadors, as icons, as viceroys of the kingdom, ambassadors, we're spreading heaven here on earth. Okay? And so that's a picture of So I'd like to do is just sit back, watch this video, and then I'll pick up after that. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. 
And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile, but a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now, Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger, and he's running towards the city. He's running, and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. Yeah, so when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus says the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right, but for Jesus, this is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, 
but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. I think that's a, a great illustration of what we're trying to communicate this morning about the kingdom of God. Uh, Matthew um, 10, I mean, sorry, Matthew 6, 10, you know, Jesus uh, says this, says when, when the dis- disciples ask him how to pray, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then even farther on in that chapter, he says, um, in verse 33, it says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added. In fact, he goes on to say, therefore, do not be anxious about anything about tomorrow for tomorrow uh, will be anxious for itself, sufficient for the day, its own trouble. So in other words, our main goal as followers of Jesus is to seek his kingdom, right? And all these things will be added. In other words, our focus should be the kingdom of God. And so that's what I want to try to communicate this morning and understand as we begin to study the Beatitudes, what is Jesus trying to communicate to us um, and, and his, what he's trying to communicate is about his kingdom. So when you think about the kingdom of God, I, I want you, instead of trying to find a working definition, I want to, I want to think of three words. Uh, if you're, you're keeping notes, write these down. The first one is this idea of dwelling. You see this idea of God with us from the very beginning. We see God with Adam and Eve. He created them. He, was in the, he walked with them in the cool of the evening in the garden. Uh, we see uh, this idea of um, him in the tabernacle. We see uh, him coming, not only the tabernacle, but also the temple. And then we see ultimately Jesus, who it says, Emmanuel, God with us. He, he came and he put on flesh and blood, and he dwelt among his people. He dwelt among his creation. And then we even see uh, this on the day of Pentecost when it says the Holy Spirit filled us, the same picture of fire in the presence of God in the temple, that he filled individuals with fire, his presence, his spirit in their hearts and soul, and now gives them the ability to walk out in obedience to him. And we see even in Revelation 7, this idea of a new heaven and a new earth, and that he will dwell with his people, and they will be, he will be their God, and they will be his people. So it's that picture of dwelling. The other word I want you to write down is this idea of dominion. And so we see this too, this, this idea of in Eden, the Garden of Eden, what was the thing that Jesus gave or God gave um, Adam and Eve? Dominion, right, over the fish and the birds and the air and every, everything, and to be fruitful and multiply. So he gave them dominion, and we see this same language used even when he came among his people and gave them their law. He, they were his holy people, um, an, an example to the nations. And then ultimately, we see that even with Jesus, that he said, go, I give you all authority to go and make disciples, right? And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be my witnesses. So it's the same picture. And then ultimately, this idea of a dynasty. We see uh, that no longer are we slaves to sin, but we are slaves to God. We're slaves to righteousness. But more than that, we're sons and daughters of the king. I've talked about this, that we're adopted into the kingdom of God. And not only that, we're co-heirs with Christ. And eventually, God is allow us to rule and reign here on this new heaven and earth with him. 
And so not wanting while we're here on earth to trade any of these fleeting things, these things are just but a vapor for eternity, right? And so again, it's this picture of everlasting dynasty. I think one of the things that we need to see, and I don't know if I really saw it before uh, on the Sermon on the Mount and especially the Beatitudes, was this idea of human flourishing. I think the, 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 the Sermon on the Mount is really God's picture of human flourishing. It's, it's a picture of what God really wants for us in his kingdom. And again, don't think of his kingdom like when we get to heaven one day. The eternal life began the day that you asked Christ, you, you invited him in, you, you repented of your sins, you gave your life to Christ, and his spirit indwelled you. That is when eternal life began. And that's when the kingdom of God began in your life. And so understanding that Jesus came and the kingdom come, thy will be done, right? And so he brought his kingdom, but he is continuing his kingdom, but he will ultimately fulfill his kingdom when he sets up his rule and his reign. So go with me to Matthew 5. I want to read verses just 1 through 3 this morning and concentrate primarily on verse 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountains and when he sat down, his, uh, his disciples came to him. So primarily, again, he's teaching to his disciples, but the crowds were gathering. We see this everywhere until the very end of his ministry when he begins even harder teachings. They begin to disperse, and ultimately, when he went to the cross, everyone went away except for uh, the women and one guy, okay? Thank you, women. Y'all are very faithful. Uh, but uh, we, we see that he's primarily teaching his disciples because, again, that's how he's going to start or usher in the kingdom of God uh, here on earth through these men. And so he says here he sat down and his disciples came to him. And then he said he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, by the way, um, one of our responsibilities as believers is to make disciples and Jesus goes on to say, teaching them to obey everything I commanded. So a part of disciple-making is teaching, right? We talk about that both here from the stage, but also in small groups, but also in life. Some of my best teaching, or if you will, some of my best lessons have been learned has been life on life in community groups or in discipleship groups. So I encourage you, if you're not in a D group, you're not ultimately in a community group, you need to be in one. That's where you begin to grow and you get to learn and be taught, and then eventually you're going to be teaching others around you. And, and by the way, we're all influencing others, right, around us, so we're always going to be doing that on some level. The, the third verse is this, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs, or for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. Now, I know there's been uh, some people that have created a type of theology based around uh, that God only came for poor people. That's not true, okay? God came for all mankind. He, he doesn't want anyone to perish, uh, but all come to repentance. So um, we need to look a little deeper into what this really means about the poor in spirit and also that they will receive the kingdom of heaven. So the big idea this morning is this. The heart condition of receiving the kingdom of God is to acknowledge our spiritual poverty. See, to enter in the kingdom of God, you must admit, you must confess, you must understand that you are bankrupt, that you cannot save yourself, that you cannot fix your brokenness, that you not, cannot clean yourself up. And this is what we see, the very entrance into the kingdom of God 
is through this idea of humility, this idea of repentance, this idea of brokenness. Um, in fact, if you see the word blessed, um, again, I know, I know it's hard sometimes. We, we look at that word and we look at uh, blessed and then another text says woe, right? So this blessed verse woe, so it's almost like this blessing versus cursing. But when you really look at it, it's better this picture of flourishing because it's hard sometimes to translate words from one language to the other. But I, I like this idea of flourishing. In other words, God's given us these things to understand because he wants the best for us. He, 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 he created us. He knows us. So he wants us to flourish. He wants us to be blessed. And so he's, he's offering the hearers and understanding that there is a better way to live in this world. And not only this world today, but the coming world he's going to usher in. So um, it, it literally means to, to really be blessed and to flourish. The other thing is this idea of poor in spirit. It's really this idea of humility, this idea of, of, of repentance, to be poor in spirit. Um, it, it also brings this idea of being a beggar. Now, I've never had to beg for anything in that sense. Does that mean? I, I, maybe someone here has had to live on the streets or be in a situation where they've been in a position to beg. Now, doesn't mean I've never asked for help. I've done that. But th this is deeper than that. This is like destitute. Um, I, I, as I studied for this, I began to think, and there, there is one story that I want to pull out of my life that I think would relate to this story um, and it involves some of my friends. I, I, I really need to sit down and write the stories of my childhood because I really had a great childhood. Um, and, but I had some pretty crazy adventures too. I, I feel like it's kind of a, a blend between like uh, Sandlot and, um, and the, uh, oh shoot, my brain went blank. Uh, what's that movie, the... Um, Goonies, thank you. You knew it, Matt. You know me well, dude. The Goonies. That's exactly what I was thinking. Thank you. Uh, so, I, I mean, I, I had some things, and I still haven't told my parents about all those things, so uh, this may be news to them. I, I think they know about this one. Um, I had a, a really good friend. His name was Ricky, too, believe it or not. We were kind of best friends up until about ninth grade. And uh, so everywhere I went, he went. We were, we were buds. And he was, he was from a single-parent home, and so and we get home from school, we turn his kitchen into a wrestling mat, would lay down all the uh, sleeping bags, or even just come off the top counter and ropes and stuff. We were big into, uh, it wasn't WWE back in the day, it was like Georgia Wrestling Federation and stuff like that. That really gives away my age. Uh, but we would do crazy stuff like that. We had another really good friend, his name was Sam. In fact, his dad was a pastor, and uh, find out, uh, I talked to Ricky just last year, and found out Sam's a pastor too, which is crazy any of us uh, came to know Jesus on top of being pastors. But um, we had a, he, had a, he had a carport, and in the back of the carport was this kind of mudroom slash laundry room, but it, you had to go out of the house under the carport to get to it. Some of you guys may be seeing some of these houses designed like that. And we were really bad about teasing each other and giving each other a hard time. And so we did something to Sam. He, he got mad. He was going to go home, and, and I can't remember what we did. I don't know if we threw a rock at him or made him mad about something. And uh, we went in, the, went in the mud room, and we put our body against the back of the door and put our feet against the wall. So the minute, you know, he hit the door, it'd be just like face plant, right? Well, he went through, and what we didn't know was that he wasn't putting his hands on the door. He was putting his hands on the glass. And so when he did, I mean, it wasn't the breakaway glass of today. It just, 
literally sliced him straight down like this, right? And I think we're like, I think we're about 11 or something like that, 12. And we're laughing because Ricky and I are inside the room. We're laughing. And he all of a sudden just gave out this blood curl scream. And we look up and there's blood everywhere. It's shooting everywhere. It's all over. And literally, we freak out. We just have him grab his arm, you know, to try to get, cut off the blood flow. And I just remember this so vivid, even as I was thinking about the story, is that we just lived on off of kind of a main road, but just a little side road. He just ran outside, and there were cars passing. And he was just screaming, saying, give me a ride, give me a ride, give me a ride. Now, later, that became funny. Like, after months later, then we found out we weren't going to die ourselves from our parents, and he was going to survive, but he got dozens of stitches in there. And he lost a lot of blood. But in the moment, it was such a desperate cry for help. And this is what I imagine when Jesus is saying, for those who are poor in spirit. In other words, guys, do you know that you have a great need for Jesus? Do you understand you have a great need to be forgiven? Do you understand you have a great need to be reconciled to your creator? And you can't do it. And you're, you're in such a desperate beggar situation. You have no hope but to cry out to the one who can give you salvation. Do you understand where you're at? I remember having a conversation with a student who was, I was a youth pastor. And his, his parents were actually strong youth leaders. And I remember I struggled because I didn't think the guy was uh, a believer in Jesus. And I remember having a heart-to-heart talk with him one day. And he was like, dude, why do I need Jesus? I got everything. You just don't understand it, do you? Oh, you, you got a nice home, nice room. You're provided for. But you're destitute. You're, you have nothing. You have, you have no hope. Okay? You're an enemy of the living God. And you're not born into God's family because your parents are youth workers or your parents are deacons or, or, or some type of leaders in the church or you go to church. You're born again through the power of the Holy Spirit, through repentance in and faith in Jesus. And so... This is what, this is what um, Jesus is trying to communicate here. It's this idea that in the Old Testament, people that were poor in the Old Testament were both afflicted and unable to save themselves. They were in positions where they could not redeem themselves, re- recognize they had no claim on God, and God alone was the only one that could save them. They were in indispensable condition of receiving God's, uh, the kingdom of God. And to acknowledge our spirit, spiritual poverty to the poor in spirit and only to the poor in spirit, the kingdom of God is given. In other words, you can only come to God through humility and through repentance. And, and, and God tells us over and over, Jesus reminds us, James reminds us, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I, I want to ask you, if you have not humbled yourself before God today, humble yourself. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. God wants to give us a life that is flourishing. He's offering to you that life of flourishing. And we see even Jesus remind us of this in Revelation 3. There's a a story about a church, uh, Laodicea. And I want to read the text, and I want to kind of give you a picture of what Jesus is reminding us of this. He says this in verse 15. Through 20. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold or hot. 
would you that were either cold or hot, so because you were lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Literally, projectile vomit. You, you disgust me, okay? Because you're playing games with the living God. He says this, For you say I'm rich and I have pros- I'm prospered and I, I need nothing, just like the young man I was describing, but not realizing that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, I want you to think about that. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, that you may be rich in white garments, so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in him and eat with him and he with me. I want you to think about this picture. Someone who you see on the side of the road or maybe down the streets of a busy place. And they're, they're beaten up, they're bruised, they're cut. And they have no clothes on. And not only do they not have any clothes on, they're running into things. They're running into signs. They're running out in the middle of traffic, barely getting missed by a vehicle. And you go to them and you say to them, I want to help you. And they're like, I don't need help. I'm good. That's what, that's what Jesus is saying about these people, that they don't even know. They need to come and buy gold and white garments and salve for me so they can be healed so they can be forgiven, so their eyes can be opened, they can pass from darkness to light. Their hearts of stone can be turned to a heart of flesh. This is what we see a picture of. (laughs) But the reality is, if you're bankrupt, what can you buy it with? The beauty of this is that, is that the gift of salvation is by faith, faith in the finished work of Jesus. And this idea of faith is this idea of both declaration and demonstration so this faith is works as well in other words what i mean by that is faith without works is dead right so those things you really believe in you practice it's by grace through faith alone but those things that you truly believe in they're signs of new life i heard someone say this past week orthodoxy without orthopraxy is like a corpse okay in other words you can have all the right doctrine in your head but if you're not living out that, then what change has really happened? It's like telling your friend, go and be warm when they knock on your door and it's bitterly cold outside and you do nothing, right? So it's this idea that Jesus is reminding us that when we have been born again, when we've got faith in the Son of God, then our repentance is real and that things begin to happen in our lives. Change begins to happen. Jesus desires for human flourishing. Remember, it's based by grace. It's an invitation into God's kingdom. James 2, 5 says this, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And it's not that people who are wealthy can't have faith. It's not like he's choosing. It's just the reality is like, The scriptures warn us over and over, the comforts of this world, what do they do? They begin to choke out the life, the faith in us, right? 
And so we have to guard ourselves, becoming, as we just finished this past series, about becoming too consumer-minded, too comfortable, that God is calling us to a discomfort, calling us to follow him. And so this is what Jesus is reminding, that we are saved by grace through faith. But when that faith happens, there is a, an about face, there's change. See, we do need to be careful not to pin grace and virtue against each other. And otherwise, we create a self-inflicted dilemma that cannot make sense of the entirety of Scripture's witness. Grace is foundational to everything about Jesus' ministry, including his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. And his grace is demonstrated through the invitation to all the full of humanity to flourish in this way of life. To kind of display the wisdom of God. He is trying to get people to see that there is a better way. You don't have to live in that dump. You can live in this five-star. And it doesn't mean, I'm not talking about prosperity gospel. What I'm talking about is a better way to do life. See, you can, you can live in a, a 200 square, 300 square place, but be flourishing for God. Or you can live in a 30,000 uh, foot mansion and be a wreck. And so what he's saying here is this, this idea of humbling yourself, being poor in spirit, is the entrance into the kingdom of God. And when you understand you're destitute, you can't save yourselves, you can't clean yourselves up. God's spirit comes into your life and he begins to give you the grace to live the life that's a flourishing life, a life about his kingdom and about his ways, not yours. So why don't people repent? Why, why don't people put their faith in Jesus? I, I think many times what we do is we, we focus on the created over the creator, right? As I was mentioning that young guy, or even in uh, Revelation 3, it's this idea that I've got all these things material-wise. I, I have everything I need. Well, why do I need Christ, right? But the reality is this. Those things let you down over and over and over again, don't they? You keep going back to it, and it doesn't fill you. You keep returning to it like a dog returns to vomit. And we go back to those things, and they leave you more and more empty. And so this is what reminds us that people many times go to the created over the creator. Or, or they love the lie over the truth. We see this in the Garden of Eden where it all started. Adam and Eve chose the lie over the truth. They, they, they suppressed the truth of God. They, they believed Satan, the liar, the deceiver, over the one who created them, who, who knows them intimately. And this is what we do many times. We, we believe lies. We, we get away from the word of God. We don't understand our identity in God. We, we don't understand the promises of God. We begin to live on the promises of this world that, again, will leave you empty. And so we need to understand that we need to put in our, understand the truth over the law. And then I think many times we just, we just think we're smarter than God, right? We just think we know best. Now, I know we've all been there, those who have had kids, where your kids look at you, and they just think they know better than you, right? I was there with my dad. I remember, like, he's not very smart, okay? And then, of course, years later, uh, I'm the dumb one. And it's like trying to take a kid, sometimes, that's five or six years old, and, and describe you know, an atomic bomb, how it works. 
We just don't get it. And that's why it goes back to trusting God, right? Walking by faith, not by sight. And trusting God has a plan and a purpose. And that we have to trust that over ourselves, over our own emotions. So let me ask you the biggest question this morning is this. Are you poor in spirit? Are you poor in spirit? Remember, it's not material blessings, but it's this idea of humility before God. This understanding of repentance. And listen, it's not just this idea of, hey, I got my ticket to heaven. That's, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. That's not God's plan to get a ticket for future heaven. It's, it's this idea of that you're in into a personal relationship with the God of the universe and he has a plan and a purpose for you now. Eternal life, entering the kingdom of God and advancing his kingdom and making disciples. This is what God is about. And this is what he's trying to teach us. So understanding that it's not a future thing, it's a here and now. It's a both and. It's not an either or. And so when I ask you that question, when I ask you, are you poor in spirit? Are you, or not only do you humble yourself before an almighty God and receive salvation, but on a daily basis, are you humbling yourself to say, hey, I'm going to die to self just as Jesus did when, when his disciples probably at any time in his life probably needed to serve him the most right before he went on the cross. What did he do? He took out his outer garment, put a towel around his waist and began to wash the disciples' feet. Why? Because he had a servant mindset. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And this is what we need to be about. We need to be about the Father's business. So we need to be poor in spirit. In the sense, we need to be broken and humble. So one, do you know Jesus? Two, are you keeping that mindset of humility? Let me tell you something. That will make you a, a more flourishing marriage, a more flourishing friendship, a more flourishing neighbor, a more flourishing son or daughter, a father or a mother, a grandparent. It will make you a more flourishing man or woman of God to be poor in spirit. We stand. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus, we, we want to introduce you to him. There'll be some people up front. We'd love to share you the good news of Jesus with you. See what that looks like. And if you just need to be prayed for or prayed with, we want to invite you up. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that it's your work that's doing in hearts of people. God, I... I'm just a, a newsboy. I'm, I'm just planting. I'm just throwing the seed out. God, I may water, but you're the one that gives the increase. So, Father, we trust you for what you're doing. Thank you for this place. Thank you for the people that are gathering here. God, continue to allow us to advance your kingdom. God, to be about your business. Thank you for your word that you left behind to, to shape us and mold us in your image. In Jesus' name, amen.